0: sins, he will be forgiven. Please be seated. Well, thank you, Danny, for reading our Scripture tonight. Thank you, Brandon, for leading us in our singing, and such beautiful singing, and it's always an encouragement for me to be with you and be a part of the singing and listening very carefully and following along with the prayers as we have tonight. and. I feel always very fortunate and blessed to be able to do that. And I'm glad that each of you are with us. If you're visiting with us, we're very happy to have you. And we encourage you to come back and be with us with every opportunity. We'll be meeting again, 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening. And I look forward to that opportunity as well with each and every opportunity we have to come and worship and study the Bible. As you know, we have been discussing difficult texts of the Bible and we've looked at a number of difficult texts and i've tried to lay the foundation for these particular studies by discussing issues like naturally there'd be some difficult passages to understand because of how great god is and how wise god really is so it's only understandable that we would have some difficult texts that we would have to deal with and even the apostles we we looked at that where peter said even things that paul wrote where some things were difficult to understand and hard to understand. So it certainly doesn't mitigate anything about the authority integrity of the Bible to find that there are difficult texts here and there. But we studied through that particular matter, and we're on our course in looking at some difficult texts of the Bible. And I thought of this particular text. We were talking about it this morning from the book of James. And I want to go to James chapter 5, and the passage that I have in mind is verse 14 and verse 15. And this passage has come up a time or two. Now let me talk a little bit about the book of James and in a general way talk about what kind of book we're dealing with here and that perhaps will help us as we understand as much of the context as we can. James is uh, not written by an apostle. James was a half-brother of the Lord. Uh, There were a couple of um, writers of the New Testament that were not apostles. I'm thinking of Luke. I'm thinking of Mark. Mark. I'm thinking of James. These people were not apostles of Christ. James was not. The apostle James, in fact, there are four men in the New Testament spoken of as James. In Acts chapter 12, the apostle James was killed by Herod. But here's the half-brother of the Lord. He started out as not really believing and doubting in Jesus, John chapter 7. But then, of course, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 how that Jesus appeared to James after his death and subsequent resurrection, and he became very faithful, very faithful believer and a child of God. He becomes a very prominent person in the church of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, and other passages which indicate the matter. Actually, dating the book might be a little more difficult. It's going to be sometime around 60, uh, <clears throat> and I'm going to give it from 62 to 68, somewhere in there. I think I'm safe in saying that it is written prior to or before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. It is written to those Jewish believers. It's described as those who are dispersed. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. You might have in your translation dysphoria or that original word there conveys the idea of Jewish Christians who are out into the Roman Empire. They're not in Jerusalem, but they're necessarily facing Uh, persecution, and need encouragement. So we have a very practical book with regard to this matter of James. Now I'll come back to this particular point in just a minute. I want to get down to business. I want to look at exactly what this verse is about and how we are to look at it. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I've run across several people who have asked me the question from time to time and uh, over the course of years, and I've actually talked to people who practice this. They called upon the elders of the church, and they anointed sick with oil. And I've tried to discuss this particular matter with them as I'm discussing it with you tonight. And this particular practice of anointing someone with oil, let's look at this and ask the question... Do we have a reference of this ever being done in the book of Acts? No. Now, if this were a universal command for anybody and everybody that's a Christian, I would think that I'd certainly have some kind of historical reference or benchmark to look at with regard to the book of Acts, but I do not. Now, that's a pretty big tip-off right there that it really is not for me today and does not apply to me today, but I'm not quite finished with that important point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let me emphasize just a point or two from that standpoint. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll recognize that passage as it's about the uh, thorn in the flesh of the Apostle Paul. And he um, is really dealing with what we've come to call his Corinthian opponents. They were denying his apostleship. And a lot of what he's saying in this book is defending his apostleship and his ministry. And he says, now, you know, I've had revelations, and I've been given revelations, but not to boast. I don't want to boast about that matter. And he's trying to defend his revela- his apostleship by expressing the things that God has revealed to him. And he says, especially verse 7, because of the extraordinary revelations, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Now the reason I thought of this passage, 2 Corinthians twelve seven through 9, why didn't Paul ask for the elders of the church to come to anoint him with oil and cure this matter? and heal this matter, but it does not. There's a passage in Scripture of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, and in 1 Timothy chapter 5, about verse uh, 23 there, we see a person who is very sick and very ill. And this is a common thing which took place in ancient times, just as it takes place today in our day and time. And I'm looking at um, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and in this it is uh, telling me, It's taken me a second to find the citation, but I find it here in verse 23. Notice the emphasis that's given to the passage. Now, don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, I don't need to get into the background with regard to this particular passage. I don't need to talk about the problem of the impurity of the water and the issues that are involved there. The reason I thought of this passage is, if Timothy's ill, why don't you just call for the elders of the church, have them come and anoint him with oil, pray for him, and he'll be healed. In the book of Philippians, we see in chapter 2 a remarkable man by the name of Epaphroditus. And in Philippians chapter 2, a prison epistle written in the early 60s. There the Apostle Paul is saying, now, Epaphroditus was here. He is surely a man who has uh, the mind of Christ. And that was his point in Philippians chapter 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And it's an amazing passage you and I have studied a number of times. And Epaphroditus became sick while he was there ministering to Paul. And the passage that I have in mind is Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse, verse 25. But I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow." Well, he's mentioning the significant help that Epaphroditus had given him. But the point of emphasis that I'm looking at right now is, why he nearly died. Now, Paul's writing this from the standpoint of Epaphroditus didn't want you to know how sick he really was. He was really sick, and he nearly died. Well, if James and his um, instruction with regard to the elders of the church, anoint him with oil and be healed, why didn't he do that? We don't have any record of that taking place. I turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have another passage of Scripture which is interesting with regard to the sick in this matter of healing. And it comes up to us in about verse 20, and uh, you see Erastus, a a very Greek name here. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. He said, I had to leave Trophimus at Miletus while I was traveling. He was sick. Well, if Trophimus is so sick, why didn't Paul call for the elders of the church and just come and anoint him with oil and have him healed? Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, you see the story of a wonderful Christian woman. And uh, it is amazing how good she was. And her name occurs in the pages of the Bible here because of her christian attitude and her very unselfish heart and it comes to acts chapter 9 and verse 36 and Joppa there was a disciple named tabitha which is translated dorcas she was always doing good works <clears throat> and acts of charity about that time she became sick and died after washing her they placed her in a room upstairs <clears throat> she became sick and she died Now, I think this is sufficient evidence for me to say. I do not see this particular practice James is describing in James chapter 5 as being a universal practice of the New Testament church. I don't see it then, and I don't think it's for us now. In fact, as we go through the pages of the Bible, we're going to find a number of people who in turn were sick, but there's nothing mentioned about that. Now keep in mind Mark chapter 16 and verse 20 because Mark chapter 16 and verse 20 makes it very clear what the purpose of the miracles was about. The purpose of the miracles was not to heal the sick though the sick were healed and the lame walked and the dead were raised but that really wasn't the purpose of it. The purpose of the miracles of the New Testament was to prove the authenticity of the Word of God to prove that this really is god 's Word, and not some kind of charlatan, not some kind of false doctrine that's being promoted among uh, among the people, so let 's talk just a little bit more now about James chapter five, and we 're beginning to wonder why is it that this is not being practiced, this is certainly not being followed with regard to the New Testament. I don't see any evidence of it in the book of Acts. It's never mentioned. It's never mentioned among these very prominent people that the Bible talks about as being sick. So what is the point that's being referenced here in James chapter 5? Well, I'm going back to my text tonight, and I'm looking at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord." Now, exegetes look at this passage, and they naturally ask the question, why call for the elders of the church? Why should the elders of the church be involved in this particular matter? And I think the answer to that is simply that the elders represent the congregation. They represent the congregation of which they attend and oversee. Notice James uses the Jewish word elder. He doesn't use the word bishop. Uh, He doesn't use uh, the word pastor or shepherd. All of these words are used interchangeably with regard to the matter. He uses, showing his Jewish background, the word elder. And it certainly refers to the bishops and the pastors and the shepherds. That sort of uh, term applies and is used interchangeably for them. Well, he says, now call for the elders of the church. These are the men who himself was an elder. These are the men who really represent the church. Now, if anyone is going to have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, I would suspect, notice the use of my terminology, I use it purposefully, I would suspect that it would be elders of the church. Now, there, weren't, there were others, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, who had the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the different gifts of the Spirit. In the gifts of the Spirit, we're talking about the miraculous, which they had in the first century. The point of consideration is elders had it, but others had it as well. I would say that he's saying if there are elders of the church that are there that have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, call for them. He says he should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. Now let's do a little bit of grammatical consideration with regard to the words that we have here in verse 15. And he uses, this translation uses the word will save. Some translations will have shall save. In modern English, there's very little difference between will and shall with regard to expressing the simple future tense. And that's what we have here. Now Hebrew translators are very careful about the word shall and will. They want to use the word shall when it comes with regard to the law of God and the commandments of God. But as far as New Testament writers are concerned, they're not that particular with regard to the use of the word will or shall. It can probably be used interchangeably. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. They're not so particular about expressing the future tense, the simple future tense. This translation uses the word will. You know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the Greek tense is not that particular about whether we will use will or whether we will use shall. It really doesn't make any difference in this passage. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. Now, I want to make a point out of that, though. It is expressing a strong assertion that this is going to happen. Because he did not say, he may be saved. It didn't say, it could be he is saved. It didn't say, it's possible that he will be saved. It says, he will be saved. Your translation may use the word shall asserting a strong assertion he will be so it's not so much an optional matter with regard to these particular matters he doesn't say maybe he doesn't say perhaps he says he shall be saved so it seems that we're beginning to see from this particular passage a case whereby the bible is talking about the miraculous work of the holy spirit which was indigenous in the first century but not today first corinthians chapter 13 it was for them in the early church, but not for us today. And you and I have studied that particular matter at some length. Turn with me to Mark. The book is uh, the book of Mark and the chapter is chapter 6. And I'm looking at about verse 13. And we're going to look at a passage of scriptures. Jesus sends them out and he sends his disciples out in their preaching and their teaching. And he gives them instructions along the way. And we come across this verse in the early part of the chapter That's about verse 13. He's giving this limited commission to the 12, as we sometimes call it. He summoned the 12, this is verse 7, and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put, uh, put on an extra shirt. He said to them, "'Whenever you enter a house,' Stay there until you leave that house. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave, therefore, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He wants the lost sheep of the house of Israel to hear the word of God, and he wants them to go to the most receptive prospect. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointing many sick Sick people with oil and heal them. So we have the anointing of oil in the context of the miraculous work in Mark chapter 6 and verse 13. He's saying in this particular passage as you go out and you're preaching and teaching and you're looking at and talking to the most respected and sensitive prospect with regard to the matter you uh, drive out the demons you have the power to so do that and you heal the sick. They drove out many demons, the text says in verse 13, anointing anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So it's very clear that I'm dealing with a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit when I'm talking about James chapter 5. Now it could be that what he's talking about with regard to the oil, and the oil that's used there in James chapter 5, the word oil goes back to olive oil, that was being used. Many times olive oil was used as a medicinal type of purpose. Here the Samaritan he helps this burn. They poured oil in this poor man's wounds. The priest and the Levite passed by on the other side. But oil is being used to help him and to heal his wounds. It's a medicinal type of purpose. But I suspect that the oil that's referenced in James chapter 5 is more of a symbolic type of reference. And I don't know if I'm using the right word here. And you correct me if I'm not, I'm happy for you to do that. But it seems to me an arbitrary type of symbolism. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, when Naaman went to Elisha, and Elisha told him, dip seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman, who was a leper, And a very prominent person with regard to uh, the uh, Assyrian king. He goes and he dips seven times in the Jordan River. What point did the Jordan River really have in that? Other than it was a test of his faith to obey the command of the prophet. The Jordan River didn't have anything to do with healing him, he's a leper. He could have dipped one time, two times, and still had his leprosy. He could have dipped five times, six times, and still had his leprosy. It's only when he dipped seven times in the Jordan River, he came up clean, the Bible says. The Jordan River itself really didn't have anything to do with it. The Jordan River was a test of his obedient faith. And when he followed the instruction, the the law, the command, if you will, of the prophet, then he received the attended blessing. Well, I think I could think of a number of things that are that way. I think the idea of dipping seven times in the Jordan is simply an arbitrary type of element that really didn't have anything to do with the healing of Naaman at all. Let's see if we can think of other illustrations that might mean the same thing to us. For example, we have Joshua and the children of Israel marching around the city of Jericho. And it was a powerful city, a double-walled city. Archaeological discoveries have shown that it was a impenetrable type of city for the day. And it's very clear that the children of Israel would never have been able to conquer the city on their own. They just didn't have the ability to do it. But with God on their side they were able to conquer the city. But they were told to march seven times around the city and to blow the horns, the trumpets. Now what did the marching have to do? What did the blowing of the trumpets have to do with the walls of Jericho falling? It's sort of an arbitrary element of their test of faith. Now, if they didn't do that, they wouldn't receive the blessing. If they hadn't have followed God's instruction explicitly, they, those walls would never have fallen. But the blowing of the trumpets and the marching around the city had nothing to do with it other than that was part of God's command. You do it, and you'll receive the blessing. If you don't, you will not receive the blessing. I think I can think of several things along that particular line. In fact, I think I'll read one for you. It's found for us in the New Testament, John chapter 9. You're familiar with this particular passage. Jesus goes and he heals a blind man. This man was blind from his very birth. The interesting question that comes up in John chapter 9 is the disciples naturally associated the congenital problem with blindness with some kind of sin. And they thought, well, either he has sinned or his mother or father have sinned. And that's the reason that he's facing this particular malady. But Jesus said, no, that's not it at all. As he was passing by, I mean, John chapter 9, verse 1, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him that sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work as long as I am in the world, verse 5. I am the light of the world. We have opportunity, a limited window of opportunity to do good. And this situation arose so as to verify, prove that Jesus was the only begotten Son of God. Again, I reference Mark 16, 20. After he had said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he said, go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now the reason I'm at this passage is to ask the question, what did the mud have to do with it? And what did washing in the pool of Siloam have to do with the healing of a blind man who'd been blind all of his life? I've coined the phrase arbitrary. It's an arbitrary element which Jesus said, now you go do this. He makes this compound, makes us a soft muddy type compound, and he places it on the eyes of the man. Why well, the mud has nothing to do with the cure or the miracle. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. When he goes and washes in the pool of Siloam, why well, he comes up seeing. If he failed to do that, he wouldn't see. It was a test of his faith. Are you going to do what God has told you to do? Are you going to do what Jesus has told you to do? If you do, then you'll come away with the attended blessings. That's what this oil's about. This oil has nothing to do with the healing. Now let me go back to that passage in James chapter 5 and show you how that is the case. And I might, as I'm turning to this, make a statement about being baptized into Christ. And somebody might ask the question, well, why do I have to be baptized? Is there anything in the water that's going to cleanse my soul? Why must I be immersed in water for remission of sins? Is there anything there, any therapeutic value to that? Is it simply a washing? No, it's a command. And then in 1 Peter 3, three twenty and 21, whereupon a like figure, baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's a washing. And when one obeys the divine command, one will receive the attached blessing. The water in the baptistry has nothing to do with it other than God commanded that element be used with regard to forgiveness of sin and baptism for the remission of sins. It must be done. It's a command of God. If you're going to receive forgiveness, then you're going to have to be baptized into Christ. And God chose that element and His wisdom in order for us to bring that about with His grace and mercy. Now I'm back in James chapter 5, and I'm trying to figure out the use of this oil in this particular matter. Is anyone among you sick? Verse 14. Verse 14. He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. What saves the sick person? It is the prayer of faith, not the oil. The oil was an arbitrary element with regard to this particular matter. I use that simply as a phrase to try to explain that there's nothing really about the oil other than it was mentioned in this particular regard. I think it may be time for us to go back and look at the book of James again. And I think I'm going to go back to the beginning and I'm going to pick out just a few statements from the book of James that are rather bold and rather striking. That may give me some understanding as to why he uses his phraseology in this particular passage of chapter 5. I'm in James chapter 1, and I look at verse 13. And he's giving me, and I think this is an amazing passage, a metaphysic with regard to sin and how it comes about. No one undertaking a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God's not tempted by evil, and he's not going to use evil to tempt somebody. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, notice the word he used there. It gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, gives birth to death. So he's using the gestation process, to help us understand how sin develops in our lives. First of all, it is a desire that comes up into our heart and to our mind. And that desire now becomes conceptualized. It's like the conception. And in turn, what results from that is the action. And what results from the action when one actually participates in this activity, he's guilty of sin. And ultimately, if that sin is not cared for and seen after properly according to God's divine plan, it's going to bring about spiritual death, and one's going to have to answer for that. It's an amazing passage. I'm in the book of James, and I'm looking at some very interesting discussion that I don't have in other pages of the Bible. In James chapter 1, I'm looking at about verse 22. And here's a passage that you really ought to mark in your Bible. He's saying, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The emphasis on obeying the word of God is given over and over in the book of James. And as it does, you have reformation leaders who would come along and they didn't like the book of James. And we'll get onto to this point a little later in our discussion tonight. Because they thought that justification meant justification by faith alone. And so they didn't include James in the text. They put it as an appendix in the back of the Bible. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James because it didn't teach faith alone. It teaches you've got to be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. You've got to be obedient. And he didn't like that. So he called it a right straw epistle and put it in the back of his Bible. And modern day denominationalism continues that false notion that a person can be saved by faith alone. But the only faith that the Bible really teaches, the only faith, is an active, obedient faith, a confident trust in God and His Word, whereby the individual responds out of trust and confidence, faith. i got another verse, and I'm beginning to see how unique James really is and how we've got some unique passages coming up that I haven't read necessarily quite like that, and I find it in verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue... His religion is useless and he deceives himself. This book is rather pointed. This book is rather bold. And this book at this juncture in James chapter 1 and 26 says you've got to bridle your tongue. Now he says more about that in James chapter 3. But if we don't control our tongue if we think we're religious but if we can't control our tongue then our religion as he says we are deceiving ourselves. His religion is useless and he deceives himself, James 1 and 26. So let me try to be as plain as the Bible is plain. Stop the swearing. Stop it. That's what this Bible passage is saying. Stop taking God's name in vain. Realize that we're going to be judged by every word that proceeds out of our mouth. Stop the swearing. That's James's point, James 1, 26. It's a very bold point, and it's a very clear point, and it's a point we need. I'm in James chapter 2, and I'm looking at some Bible passages that are very uh, unusual and somewhat uh, as it comes to us. And I'm looking at verse 6. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court. Let me put some legs on this particular verse. I've read for you James chapter 2 and the verse verse 6. And the passage that is that I've got before me right now is saying, Do not discriminate against poor people. Do not take advantage of the poor. In other words, don't you know that they've been doing you that way? And the you there probably refers to the Sadducees, and they've been taking advantage of you. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? And the answer is, yes, they do. Don't be like them. He's very plain and pointed with regard to the need of the hour. The need of the hour is, don't take advantage of poor. Don't take advantage of poor people. Don't they take advantage of you, that is, the rich and the wealthy? Don't be doing that. It's not pleasing in the sight of God. I'm going to stick with chapter 2, and I'm in verse 10. And I'm picking out some interesting Bible passages that are said in a unique way. In verse 10, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Unusual verse. Now, how many sins do you have to commit in order to be a lawbreaker? I mean, do you have to commit every sin in the book in order to be a lawbreaker? And he's talking about Jewish Christians now. He's talking to them, and he's trying to emphasize you're a lawbreaker when you commit one sin. Don't be that kind of individual. If you commit a sin, then do something about it. You need to repent of that particular matter. I am guilty of sin even when I commit one sin. Now make sure that we understand the fact that God does not want even one sin to be committed. And that God wants all men everywhere to be saved. But yet we do commit sin for all of sin and have come short of the glory of God. And in that particular instance when I've committed one sin and that's all it takes to be a law breaker. I don't think I've ever seen a verse like this anywhere else in the pages of the Bible. Though the Bible is in perfect harmony with this particular point, I don't think it's ever been really presented in any other place quite like it is presented here. Now I'm in chapter 3. In chapter 3, as I had mentioned a moment ago, he talks about the tongue. Let me read just a verse or two about this matter because I need this. I need this, and you need this. And so with my heart, I'm going to read and apply it to myself. With your heart, you're following along with me, and you're going to apply it to yourself. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is mature, able to control the whole body. If a person can control his tongue, you see, you're really mature. You have perfected this level of maturity. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, verse 4, though very large and driven by fierce winds, They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now I'll end it with verse 5. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. So it's a great passage of Scripture that's admonishing us. And again, I don't know that I've ever seen it expressed this particular way with regard to the control of our tongue. Now, we've seen it a moment ago. We're seeing it again in chapter 3. The tongue is a tremendous organ of the body. And it is the mind that is to control the tongue. And sometimes our tongues just get away with us. And we start talking and we say things that we really shouldn't say. We've all been there and we've all done that. And James is saying we've got to control the tongue. Why, take the horse and the bits in the horse's mouth. Or the very small element of a rudder on a ship. And yet that pilot can send that ship wherever he wishes with the tiller and the rudder. And so it is with regard to our tongue. It can praise God. Or it can curse God. It can be an encouragement to one's fellow man. Or it can curse one's fellow man. We've got to be careful about this particular matter and you're asking me the question, well, why are you here? Because I don't know that I've ever seen it like this anywhere else in the Bible. It's a rather unique passage, but I need it. And it's very practical. Now, I'm in James chapter 4, and in the fourth chapter of the book of James, I have verse 4, and it's a very interesting passage that it describes for us. Now, this concept is certainly found in the Bible and other places. You adulterous people. Now, that's a pretty bold thing for him to say, to these christian people don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward god so whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of god now let that soak in he's saying if you're going to be the friend of the world you're the enemy of god now i can tell you right off the bat i don't want to be the enemy of god i want to be on god's side doing the will of god i don't want to be god's enemy But if I love this world, then he in turn says, you're loving the world and not God. But he starts the verse off in chapter 4, verse 4 with adulterous. And what he means by that is you're not faithful to Christ. You're not being faithful to God. If you love the world and you're devoted to the things of the world and the things that the world has to offer, and we got to be so careful with that. Spiritual adultery here. This spiritual adultery is a matter of me loving the world more than I love Christ. And I don't want to do that. But you know what? The smell of this world is in my nostrils. And the glitter of the world is in my eyes. And the taste of the world is in my throat. And I want it. I want more. And I've got to be careful about that. Do you think there's worldliness in the church today? Well, just look at how some people dress. And you're going to see worldliness in the church today. Just look at how some people act, even in the church of the Lord. And you're going to find worldliness in the church today. If you're going to let the world tell you how to dress, if you're going to let the world tell you how to talk, if you're going to let the world tell you what kind of person that you want to be or going to be, you're a friend of the world and the enemy of God. Don't let that happen. Please don't lose sight of my point, though I'm trying to emphasize the fact of this matter of friendship with the world is a sinful disposition I'm looking at a unique passage. I don't know that I've seen it expressed this way anywhere else in the pages of the Bible, though the concept is there, all up and down through the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. Now I'm in chapter 5, and what an amazing passage uh, chapter 5 is. And he's talking about rich people. And you know who the rich people are? It's you and me. We're all rich. Look at all the blessings that we have. Come now, you rich people. James 5 and verse 1. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corruption will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasures in the last days. Look. The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourself. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. His point is don't take advantage of the poor. You know, when you hire these people, give them a fair wage. You hire these people to harvest your field, pay them and pay them properly. And don't try to cheat them and don't try to do them out of any kind of uh, material wealth or material gain or wages that they've earned. Don't take advantage of the poor. Don't love money so much that you take advantage of other people. Now what I have done in this brief excursion with regard to the book of James, with regard to the book of James, is that I've seen some very pointed, bold, powerful, unique passages in the Bible. And I got one right here in James five and fourteen. Is anyone among you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That is in the context of the miraculous. And that didn't always happen in the pages of the New Testament. Now let's go back to our point which we made just a moment ago what is the purpose of these miracles anyway why did we have them well in the new testament you had them to prove the word of god we saw that in mark chapter 6 and verse 20 they confirm authenticate they prove what is the point of the miracle here it's to prove the book of james it's to prove that james is an inspired author It is to prove that James is inspired of God, for the prayer will save that sick person when this is followed, this procedure is done. Now, somebody comes along and they say, well, we did what James said here in James chapter 5, 14, 15, and he died. That would prove that James is a false teacher. That would prove that James really wasn't inspired of God. Somebody comes along and they do what James has said here with regard to the miraculous and he lives. That would prove that James is an inspired preacher. Because you know that the miracles, the purpose of which was to prove the Word of God. If this actually took place and the individual was saved from his sickness and saved from death, that would prove that James is an inspired writer. Does James have to be there when that particular person is healed? Certainly not. Jesus wasn't there when the servant of the centurion was healed. In fact, Paul was present. He was not present when people who were healed sent aprons and handkerchiefs of him, Acts 19 and verse 12. It's not necessary for him to be there in order for that miracle to take place. Elisha wasn't there when Naaman was healed by dipping seven times in the Jordan River. James didn't have to be there for the miracle to take place. When the miracle did take place, they realized... James is an inspired writer. This does not apply for me today. I don't anoint anyone with oil. I don't have that responsibility. That was a part of the New Testament church, the first century, in which there was a small window of time in which these miracles were taking place to prove, authenticate the Bible, the message, the Word of God. It's a difficult text of the Bible. I don't know of, personally, I don't know of anybody that has gone over this and studied this like we have tonight but we know what it means now. And we understand what the practice was then. And what is the practice now? We're going to pray for the sick. And it's always going to be under the rubric, Lord, thy will be done, not mine. God may decide to save. God may decide not to old King Hezekiah, he added 15 years to that man's life because of his fervent prayer. God decided to save. In some cases, he will decide not to. It's in his divine will and in his divine hands whether they are healed by his providential care or not. And it's not up to me to question God. It's up to me to pray to God and ask for his help and realize I can't do this by myself. I need God. I can't look to myself for all the answers. I need to look to God for the answers. And that's why I'm praying, Lord. I need your help. I need your providential care in my life. I need what only you can provide. Your divine care in your divine way. Prayer. That's where the power is. The power's in prayer and God's divine will for my life. I don't know where I'd be without it. I don't know where I'd be without it. And I'm sure if you were up here preaching and teaching this particular lesson tonight, you'd be saying the same thing. I don't know where I'd be without prayer. If you're not praying to God, start praying. Learn to lean upon God. Learn to beseech His help and care in His life. I love to talk about prayer. I love to preach about prayer. We as the Churches of Christ... Are known for a lot of reasons, known for a lot of things. One of the things that we're known for, we are the people who do not have mechanical instruments of music. You and I'll talk about that when we have another opportunity. We're known as people who love the Bible and really believe in the Bible and really preach the Bible. And I pray we never lose that distinction. I pray that we continue with that love for the Bible and that reputation. But are we known as a people who love to pray? Who believe in prayer? And who depend upon God and pray to Him? I pray we do become known as people who love to pray. If you're not a child of God tonight, I urge you to become one by repenting of sin and confessing faith in Jesus Christ. And by being baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Repent of your sins and confess your faith. Be washed in water for the remission, for forgiveness of sins. Somebody comes along and says, well, why do I have to? Because God said that's what He wants you to do. And if you do it, you'll receive the attended blessing, forgiveness of sin. If you've been unfaithful to God tonight, let's repent of that. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And I urge you to do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.